This is an ABC podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, around the world, Australia's seen as a real leader in gun control. We're like the gold standard. And whenever there is a big shooting in the US, for example, everyone looks at us as an example. But that means we don't actually talk a whole lot about gun reform here these days. And some experts say that's a bit worrying because there's still more to do to make Australia safer. Later, we're going to tell you why states and territories are talking about changes they can make this week about a national firearms register. Also coming up, Australia's lost one of its most influential Aboriginal elders. You're going to hear how everyone from young kids to prime ministers looked up to him. First, though, hack like my dad was arrested a lot and, you know, put into prison. So I feel like everything is insecure on Triple J. You know, navigating your teenage years is tough. We know it can be pretty weird, awkward, stressful. And that's if you've got all the support you need. But a lot of young people are trying to get through everything that their teenage years are throwing at them without one or both of their parents because they're in jail. Maybe this was you or a mate of yours. You didn't even know they had a parent behind bars because there's so much stigma about it. People don't talk about it. If you've been through this, I want to hear from you. What kind of impact do you reckon having your mum or dad in jail had on you growing up? Did you feel like there was enough support around for you, that people were looking out for you? Let me know, 0439757555. This is an issue we've covered for years on Hack, but the thing is, it's still a massive problem and kids are falling through the cracks. Our Tassie reporter April McLennan's been catching up with some young Australians who've lived this to find out what impact having a parent in jail's had on their life. And even my dad himself would, like, sell the idea of prison. He'd be like, oh, you know, it's not that bad and I have a PlayStation in my cell and stuff like that. And so I never really had that, um, like that fear of authority or wanting to fall in line or respect any boundaries or civil laws because I was like, what is the real punishment here? Like my dad seems to really love this place called prison. That's Kate. It's not her real name. She's talking about how her dad was in and out of prison for most of her childhood. By the time Kate turned 15, she was really struggling and they were pretty poor. There wasn't any money for school books or nice clothes. And some of the other kids at school found out her dad was in prison and started bullying her. I decided to stop going to school because it was just too much socially. And then I started to hang around in the city with other young people that were disengaged from school. And then um, I just began uh, stealing, shoplifting and assaulting people and um, doing robberies as well, just like my dad had done. But things turned around for Kate when she enrolled in community college and after that she went on to uni. Kate started a new relationship too. Unfortunately, it wasn't the happily ever after she was hoping for. Even with my partner, I experienced a lot of domestic violence just like my mum did. I feel like I sort of lived her life and my partner ended up going to jail and stuff. He's now my ex-partner and part of my um, degree, I... I was living in a refuge for domestic violence victims and it was just so hard, but it's just really important to persevere when you're in a situation like mine because, like, there's no one coming to help you. You are the help. So you're studying while you're in in a refuge? Yes. I had a a serious head injury as well. And I was, I remember saying to the nurses, get my laptop, I need my laptop. Because uni's so hard, you know, If if you fall, like, 
a couple of days behind. If you fall behind at uni, you stay behind. But Kate didn't fall behind. She's now graduated from uni and helps other young people through her work. Unfortunately, they're not all success stories. There's a young guy that I was personally mentoring for many years um, who ended up taking his life going back a few years now, which was, you know, horrible to have to deal with and, and um, horrible for his family as well and just couldn't kind of break out of that mindset that he was in. That's Glenn Fairweather. He's the CEO of the Prison Fellowship of Australia. Glenn reckons young people are the forgotten victims of crime through no fault of their own. Kind of the best statistics we've got would suggest that a child or a young person who's had a parent go to prison is then six times more likely than their peers to end up in prison. So that whole idea of a, a generational crime cycle is real. Apart from being scared, I was just thinking, my kids, my kids, when am I going to see my kids, my kids, my family? Like, I'm actually getting upset just thinking about it now, but yeah, (laughs) that's all that goes through your mind. Crystal had two boys in primary school when she was sentenced to six years in jail, leaving her sons to be raised by their grandparents. It's really, really hard trying to have any kind of normal relationship with anyone, let alone your children, in prison. Crystal's eldest son, Tim, is now 17, but he was about 12 years old when she got locked up. It was weird to wake up and mum not be there, especially on the first year. But I suppose as time goes on, it gets a little bit easier. But on on the big days, I still got a phone call from mum, but it's just not the same as actually being there with her, like, in person. Tim didn't tell many people at school what was going on but he decided to open up to a few of his close mates about his mum. And when you did have those conversations with your mates, were they quite supportive or did you have any negative reactions at all? I didn't get any um, negative reactions, but my little brother um, got picked on a little bit for it. While Tim and I are chatting, we're not alone. On the other side of the couch is his girlfriend, Paige. And Paige has actually gone through the exact same thing as Tim. Her mum was also in prison. It was like my first year of high school and it was coming to an end so I didn't get to like talk to her about the year and when she was in there I got like my first period as well and like she wasn't there to talk to her about it and like I had no one really so I had to figure that out on my own so it was, it was just quite hard. Bit weird not being able to call your mum was it? Yeah well when my mum did eventually call I did tell her and it was hard because she cried on the phone to me because she wasn't there for it. While Glenn did say that people who grow up with a parent in prison are six times more likely to end up behind bars themselves, this hasn't been the case for these two. Tim wants to be a plumber and Paige has a plan too. I believe you want to do something in the future to help people. Can you tell me about that? What, what's your dream job? My dream job is to be a child protection case worker because um, my family and like my siblings that we've all been through child protection and that. So like, and I used to dislike my case worker, So I want to be like someone that they can like turn to and that and be comfortable with because I've been through that. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that story. And yeah, we're hearing from a lot of people on the text line who've been through similar things growing up. Jade says, as a primary teacher, I've got a lot of students with a parent in jail and I see the emotional toll and often the behaviours that come as a result. Look, I want to get into this a bit more. Catherine Flynn knows a lot about this area because she's a senior lecturer in the Department of Social Work at Monash University, has done, done a lot of research in the past. Catherine, thanks for joining us on Hack. Thank you. It's lovely to be here, Dave. Is there still a lot we don't know about the impact on young people of having a parent in jail? Frighteningly, the answer is yes. Like, I would, I was thinking about this earlier and thinking that this is such an entrenched problem and despite the fact that there are, you know, thousands of kids and families where this is an issue, it's not 
something that people pay a lot of attention to or, or care about. And so, you know, I've been working in this space. This is kind of embarrassing to say this, but in this space for like 20 years, you know, so research, work, advocacy, and there's been very little movement in terms of what we know and in terms of how we respond to families. So it's disappointing. Catherine, there's actually been a bit of research recently into this area. What's the research been looking at? So this piece of research followed on from a study we did during COVID, which was looking really at how people maintained contact with their family member in prison. So this piece of research has really been about trying to understand who are these kids and families that we're actually talking about where there's a parent in prison. So it's a very descriptive, who are people, what are their experiences, what are their needs? So this research uh, has been funded by Shine for Kids, which is uh, the only national charity that deals with children who have a family member in prison. Three things that really stand out for me are really just how isolated these families are. So we had just under 100 people um, who contributed to the survey. Now, that might seem small, but again, we're talking, you know, we were talking before about what a stigmatised group of people, so it's hard to get people to participate. But how isolated people are, poorly connected to the community, mostly relying on family. Families are under immense financial stress. And when I say that, I mean people are talking about struggling to pay for food and shelter. And they're awful things. And the thing that really struck me, though, was the children and young people who are really struggling. And what was really evident in our findings was just how much that was the case with the number of diagnosed mental health problems that these kids had far beyond what you'd see in the community, particularly things like anxiety and just the flow-on effects to schooling. And if you're not engaged at school then you know, it's such a foundation for the rest of your life. Lots of kids that I've spoken to over time and a regular story that I've heard from people is, you know, like they go to school and they would say to people that their parent is on holiday or working away or make up some story because what they've experienced in the past is kids saying, well, I'm not allowed to play with you anymore. You know, they're between little kids or, do you know what I mean? So that sense of they're being punished for somebody else's behaviour. What do you think we need to be seeing in Australia in terms of support? I think there are lots of things, but none of them are particularly difficult, I don't think. But I think we need to start thinking about, well, when do these kids need support? So if we didn't imprison lots and lots of people, and I could say a lot about bail laws, but I won't. But if but if we weren't sending all those people to prison but had an alternative to that, then we would have less of this issue. But if we assume that people move through the justice system, then we need to think that children are present and children and young people are present the whole way through. So when we arrest somebody, what can we? how can we use that time? How can we arrest people in a way that's not only safe but is mindful of kids being present? can then refer kids on to somebody else or can see that as a time when we could get some services and supports in for people. When people go to court, why are we not providing supports and services for kids at that point? When they're in prison, why are we not providing? You know, we do provide parenting programs. We do provide visiting support, but those things need to be much more kind of present and widespread. They should be available to everybody. And then when parents go home, like people go home, 
and there is nothing in place for children. We very much appreciate your time today. Associate Professor Catherine Flynn, thanks for joining us on Hack. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Hack on Triple J. And some more messages coming through. Someone says, I feel that my dad was in prison for most of my childhood, so I had to grow up and learn so many things by myself. Hack. Former Australian of the Year, Unipingu, has died at the age of 74. I hope that that can inspire other young people to come through and become that next leader. On Triple J. Australia has lost a giant. You might have heard the news that one of our most respected Aboriginal elders has died. His family's asked for him to be referred to as Unipingu, and you're going to hear his voice soon, which his family has given permission for the media to use. Now, Unipingu was a clan leader from northeast Arnhem Land, but also a massive force in Australia's political scene. And I say that not because he was a politician, but because for decades, prime ministers would travel across the country to meet with him. Often, one of the first things they do when they get to power to get his advice on Indigenous issues. And he took them fishing or had tea with them while talking about the biggest issues impacting First Nations people and Australia. Yudapingu's been called a political warrior who walked in two worlds. If you don't know much about him, here's Miles Holbrook Walk to explain. Unifingu is one of the greatest of Australians, someone who is an extraordinary leader of, of his people. That's the Prime Minister reflecting on the life of one of Australia's most respected elders, and he's not the only one paying tribute to Unipingu. It was actually pretty normal for Prime Ministers to travel to remote parts of the Northern Territory to see Yunupingu and get his advice on Indigenous issues for decades. Whether he was advising on land rights or pushing for treaty, Yunupingu was known as a wise and truthful man. Even other First Nations elders looked to him for guidance. The great quality he had was kindness. He always attempted to find the humanity in people and hence he was able to speak to every prime minister as i said encourage aboriginal leaders like noel pearson to set goals such as constitutional recognition and find a way to achieve it he fought with a passion for his people for land for identity and he loved this country um i think my grandfather knew he was a born leader from a very small age, he knew that that would be the leader of my people. This is Yunapingu's daughter, Binmila. Looking back to the years and the time that he he's provided, I realised that I'm the most luckiest person there is. Because I, I shared my dad with the world and a lot of Yolngu people. And at the end, I'm just feeling that he's did us so proud. Yunapingu negotiated with mining companies for compensation for Aboriginal landowners. He led the Gama Festival, which is one of the most important forums for discussions on Indigenous affairs. He was even Australian of the Year in 1978. He was a singer and a painter and advised his brother, lead singer of Yothu Yindi, as he produced iconic land rights song, Treaty. But his most important work was always on country, at his homes in Yirkala and Gunyangara. 
He was a leader of the Gumach clan and carried several sacred totems, including Gurta, the fire totem. Not all of his dreams have been realised, including laying the foreground for treaty, something that's not being delivered. But without Yunapingu's work, it may have never been as big a national issue. Bin Miller says his legacy as one of the most influential leaders will be the inspiration for fellow Yungu who come after him. His work from day one, his life story, I hope that that can inspire other Yungu people to come through and become that next leaders. Even if we ignored, at least the voice is there to help us carry on the fight for justice and rights. Hack on Triple J. Binwala Yunofingo ending that story from Miles Holbrook Walk in Darwin. Let's speak to senior ABC presenter Dan Borsha. He's also the ABC's voice and referendum correspondent, and he knew Yunofingo. Dan, thanks for coming on Hack. For people listening now who may not have known a lot about Yunofingo and his work, how influential was he? Dave, good afternoon, and, and thanks for having me on to, to talk about a man who has been a giant of the land rights movement, of Indigenous politics, of the Australian broader political landscape as well. This is a man who was 1978 Australian of the Year and has spent his life in roles around advocacy and, and speaking out, representing particularly the Gumach and the Yolongwal people of East Arnhem Land, but also having a really proactive role in the Australian political discussion about what it means to be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander in Australia and how uh, that situation, how how that's grappled with in terms of the political systems and structures. Yeah, I can imagine it's a really tough day for a lot of people. Was he still really active, Dan, in recent years with some of these big discussions that Australia's having around the voice and constitutional recognition? Yeah, he most certainly was. In fact, he sat on the the government referendum advisory group, the referendum working group, and and while his health was deteriorating and he wasn't able to travel, my understanding is he took a really active role in those conversations about constitutional recognition. And you could say, Dave, that that it was him putting it on the agenda some decades ago uh, that constitutional recognition got to the point of the conversation that we're having right now about a voice to parliament and a referendum that all uh, Australians who are enrolled will be voting on. But this is is a man who has uh, seen some 11 prime ministers work directly with him and and often when a a new prime minister is sworn in by the governor general among their first trips will be to go to Yolongong country to sit down with Yonapengu to talk about the state of the nation so uh, in spite of the deteriorating health that he faced Dave in recent years he was still an incredible presence in the political landscape and even just as recently as the Dharma festival last year there was a reason why Prime Minister Anthony Albanese travelled to the Yolongu country to announce that it was becoming policy of his government to enshrine a voice to Parliament. That the reason that he, he took that trip was because it was important for him to step on those lands to, to make that announcement to the nation. As you say, Yunupingu's being remembered as one of Australia's most respected Aboriginal elders. Can you explain, Dan, what the importance of elders is for younger First Nations people? Oh, I think eldership is crucial and and it means different things to different people. And Dave, I've been so 
fortunate that I've been able to speak to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders across the nation in recent months as part of the work that I'm doing around covering the voice to parliament and the referendum. And, and what I'm asking these elders is, what does eldership mean to you? And for some, it's about that, that inalienable connection to country, to land, to law, both LAW and LORE, to being the holders of the storylines, the songlines, the cultures and the heritage, but also having that really crucial importance of being the person that passes that on to younger generations and brings younger Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people into the fold. And and so for me, Dave, like I didn't grow up on country that I'm connected to. We're from Victoria, but I grew up on Warramundu land in Tennant Creek in the Northern Territory. And it was the elders there who say that they could see something in my eyes that made them take me under their wing and teach me about the ways of that connection and of storytelling. And I think in, in a lot of ways, that's probably what's led to my career in media and in storytelling. And and uh, the crucial importance that I see of giving all people a voice and having those really important, sometimes difficult conversations. So eldership is really crucial. And and one person said to me that it feels like Nimapingu was one of the last chiefs, you know, the very senior lawmen of our nation. And, and so the, the loss is being felt uh, really acutely right across the nation. Look, there are so many wonderful tributes being made today. We appreciate your time and for you being so generous with your experiences. ABC journalist Dan Borsha, thanks for speaking with us on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, and if you want to learn more about Yonul Pingu, there's a big piece about him on ABC News Online. Definitely worth a read. Hack. Police are still investigating the events that led to December's shootout in Queensland's Western Downs. The appalling crime has already prompted calls for a national firearm registry. On Triple J. Yeah, Australia prides itself on being a world leader in gun control. Former Prime Minister John Howard brought in huge changes after the Port Arthur massacre in 1996 that left dozens dead. You've probably heard about that, but that's not the end of the story because we actually have more guns in Australia now than we did before that massacre. And after a deadly police shooting in Queensland last year, advocates are saying there's still more for us to do to make the country safer. There's a big meeting happening today involving all the states and territories to talk about it. Shalala Madora has more. On December 12 last year, four Queensland police officers arrived at a property in Wyambilla, about 270 k's west of Brisbane. They were there investigating a missing person and possible firearm offences. By the end of the long standoff, six people had died. The three suspects, their neighbour and two police officers. It is an extremely emotional and challenging time for the Queensland Police Service. The shooting was carried out by conspiracy theorists who held Christian fundamentalist views. Nathaniel, Gareth and Stacey Train acted as an autonomous cell and executed a religiously motivated terrorist attack. And it prompted a lot of soul-searching about how the suspects had managed to obtain so many guns and bullets. 
Firearms dealers have now called for database access after police revealed one of the shooters bought ammunition despite his firearms licence being suspended. So the heads of the states and territories got together with Prime Minister Albanese and agreed to implement a national firearms register. In short, it would be a database of legal gun owners that police in all states and territories could access. The shared record of firearms would mean guns would be tracked from creation to destruction. Most notably, the register would allow information to be shared across jurisdictions. Today, the police ministers from the Commonwealth and states and all of the attorneys general met up to hash out how a national register would work in practice. Here's Federal Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus. Each state and territory has a different registration, uh, licensing and permitting system. So getting those systems to talk to each other uh, is something that uh, presents some difficulty. And you may be asking yourself why we need this. Australia is considered a world leader in gun control, especially when you consider the work that former Prime Minister John Howard put into changing the laws. The uniform national gun laws adopted in the wake of the 1996 Port Arthur massacre have made Australia a much safer place, but there's always room for improvement. Since then, the number of legal gun owners has fallen sharply following a scheme to buy back guns, no questions asked. But the people who do own guns own way more than they did before. Professor Joel Negan spoke to the ABC's 7.30 program earlier this year. Overall, I think it's a good thing that there are fewer people uh, have firearm licences and are holding firearms. But the fact that some of them are holding a large number, I do have questions about why that's needed. There are now more guns out there than before our gun control laws came into effect. At times, the Australian policy settings have become a little bit uh, complacent, looking back and patting ourselves on the shoulders. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that update. I want to get into this a little bit more now. We've got Stephen Bendel with us. He's from the Australian Gun Safety Alliance. Hey, Stephen, thanks for coming on Hack. That's okay, Dave. Good to talk to you. I imagine you support this idea of a national firearms register. Why is it important? Yeah, absolutely. We support uh, the National Firearm Register. Um, it's been something that was recommended after Port Arthur that was mentioned in your intro there. It's 27 years ago this month where, that uh, Port Arthur occurred and there was a whole range of uh, improvements to our firearm laws uh, at that time. But the National Firearms Registry was one that um, hasn't been able to be solved. And... Uh, as we heard, the terrible shootings in Queensland in December um, has precipitated a, a national conversation um, in order to try and bring those eight different systems together so that our police and law enforcement um, have real-time access to information about um, firearm owners, uh, how many, what type of firearms they have, where they're, where they're located, um, so that uh, they can go about their uh, work in a safe way. We're hearing from some people uh, on our text line now who are involved in, in shooting as a sport. Someone says, Jeremiah, hi, Dave. As an experienced range officer, a person authorised to run a shooting range, the firearms registries of various states appear under-resourced and using out-of-date technology. We still use pen and paper to log a shooter's details. I mean, that seems like a huge issue to be sorted out as well. I think that uh, on a number of levels, um, 
that requires a whole lot of time, effort and resources. And hopefully the Attorney General has pulled everyone together uh, today and really sort of fast track that conversation about what it's going to take so that we can have a workable national firearms registry in place as soon as possible. Stephen, do you think Australia's lost some momentum when it comes to talking about gun control? Like we assume we have it all sorted because that's what the rest of the world kind of tells us. Um, there's a bit of complacency there. Um Probably a, maybe a little bit of complacency um, in that, uh, you know, we're very fortunate we don't have the same sort of, um, you know, gun culture as we've seen, for example, in the United States. Um, and, you know, most people think that we have our firearm laws under control. And to a large degree, we do. You know, um, Australia is a very safe place when it comes to uh, firearms. However, um, as we've heard also in your intro, there's an increasing number of firearms in the community. Um, there are people with a, a you know, a, quite a large number of firearms, which in its right is, is okay. But uh, our police need to know um, in real time um, where those firearms are, who has them, are they moving across borders, uh, and just so that they've got that information available um, to keep the community safe. Well, look, we appreciate uh, you explaining that to us. Stephen Bendel from the Australian Gun and Safety Alliance, thank you very much for your time for joining us on Hack. Thanks, Dave. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple J.